Well, we're now very nearly halfway through the retreat, and I do puzzle myself whether speaking about the history of the church in America, whether that will help people in the present moment. I don't normally give a retreat on these lines. Normally, as you know from all these tapes I've done and you've heard so often, one speaks about sin and living in the present moment and the service of our Lord. But I thought on this one occasion it was worth changing the whole picture so that at least when we come to the troubles we face in the church today, that you and I should have some understanding and some courage from the history we've had in this part of the world. But I would like very much, I'm sure that you yourselves at the stations and in the rosary and when you're reading, that you can fill in for yourselves the joyful, sorrowful and glorious mysteries and that you don't have to think very much or pray about what I'm saying, excepting I'm hoping so much that some of you will go home feeling very much aware of the chance we have and the tremendous tradition we have to fulfill. Because many people suffered a great deal and got no reward for it to build the church in the United States. I find it myself very helpful to read the Acts of the Apostles at the same time because the pattern of the history of the church is always the same. It started at Pentecost when they gathered together with our Blessed Mother and the Holy Spirit came down to them. And the first thing we noticed was in the Acts you can see the, the prayer they had, then you can see a liberation so that they began to want to tell other people than their own little set, and then of course you get with persecution people being driven out of Jerusalem into Asia Minor. It's amazing in the history of the church how persecution has very largely been responsible for the spread of the church. And this, of course, we see, say, in Europe, where St. Paul, he ended up in Rome, and then you get St. Gregory the Great and the Benedictines and the tremendous work they did slowly covering the whole of Europe at a time of very considerable persecution and great hardship of the Dark Ages, and so to, we in Europe and you in America, we owe a tremendous debt uh, to the monks. And then again, you suddenly see when Father White sets out for Maryland, this was persecution that caused that. The Catholics in England were having a terrible time. These men like Campion and Subtle died with very little to show for all their hardship. St. Margaret Clitheroe, that wonderful woman, was crushed to death at York because she wouldn't allow the terrible situation that her children should give evidence against her in the courts so she wouldn't plead and the punishment for that was to be crushed to death. She's now canonized. There are so many of these remarkable people, just ordinary folk like ourselves, they had no result excepting that the Ark and the Dove left Europe for the United States. And when you come here to the United States and they landed just here, that then you find the same thing a tremendous zeal, like in the Acts, to tell people the good news. I don't think you can be a Christian and not have that desire to share what our Lord gave us, the Church, with other people. And whether you like to look at the Spaniards coming up through California or the wonderful Canadian martyrs coming southward, there was a tremendous urge to reach the m most lovely people here, the Indians, and to give them and they did give them uh, the message of hope which they hadn't got before. 
After all, we don't, when we sell the church, we don't sell necessarily rosaries or novenas or the Catholic paper or the hierarchy. What we are selling is the good news that our Lord died for us all, that his life is extended, and that he will give us eternal life. And this is what certainly motivated Father White. I meant at the last time to read uh, the final part of his letter where he describes the landing on, this, on the Feast of Our Blessed Lady's Annunciation, 1634. He says, On the day of the Annunciation of the Most Blessed Virgin Mary, in the year 1634, we celebrated on this island the first Mass which had ever been offered up in this part of the world. After we had completed the sacrifice, we took on our shoulders a great cross which we had shaped out of a tree, and advancing in order to the appointed place, <coughs> with the assistance of the governor and his associates and the other Catholics, we erected a trophy to Christ, humbly reciting on our bended knees the litanies of the Holy Cross with great devotion. When I saw you making the stations just now, I couldn't help feeling the same thing that what was done uh, so many hundred years ago down the river, we're still doing now. Not carrying a huge cross, but it's the same good news that we're spreading. So then let us, at this meditation, let us think of one obviously special thing, and that is how the uh, first Maryland colonists and missionaries, how they came really to deal with the Indians. Later, of course, Maryland, like everywhere else, was to be largely a trading thing, and the Baltimores and all their friends and the businessmen in London and over here were interested in money and land and farms, but that certainly wasn't why Father White came here. But Father White and the missionaries, they came for the Indians. And indeed, there was a good deal of friction when Leonard Calvert, the Colvert, the uh, brother of Cecil, second Lord Baltimore, when he and the others tried to say that the priests should only work for the whites. It wasn't at all in Father Andrew White's mind. They came really to spread the gospel, and they did it very effectively among the Indians. Their very first trip is very well described. Father White himself didn't go, I imagine, because his pants were in the Potomac. <laughs> I don't know why that's the real reason, but he didn't turn up. And Father Grosvenor, the other priest who came with him, he went. Father Altham or Grosvenor, he had an alias, as all the priests did in those days. They had to travel, travel under another name. Uh, Father Altham wasn't a particularly distinguished man. Father Henry Moore, the Thomas Moore's great-nephew, uh, said, said of him that he was very competent and honourable, but he didn't do anything particularly well. So there's a hope for some of us. <laughs> So we are told that the Darv they went in the little boat that had had all that terrible storm and been towed across the Atlantic. I couldn't imagine anything more frightful than to be towed across the Atlantic in a dinghy. The Dove was polished and decked out in its finest array. So were the men. They appeared in their broad-brimmed hats with a big feather stuck on the side with white frills round the neck and wrists and bosom, a short sword on the hip and high top boots on the feet. This is the way they have been represented on canvas and in marble. Now, while the ship sailed up the Potomac, so they passed our very house here, and passed by river springs and bushwood and cobneck and chapel point and blossom point, and then by Indian head uh, to Glymont, the Indians came forth from their hiding place to stare at the pageant. 
to shout and shriek and then scamper off into the woods. After a short run and a little manoeuvring round the big bend in the Potomac, the dove finally hove to in P Piscataway Creek. The emperor with his 500 braves stood on his ground and showed fight. The colonists soothed his mighty anger by their gentle address, by their signs and gesticulations of friendship, and by the beads and trinkets they held up before the wandering eyes of the savages. Now they were friends, the military men explained their visit of peace, Father Altham his mission of civilization, and Captain Fleet his desire of trading with them and giving them always the best of the bargain. I bet he didn't do that. <laughs> Father, he was, Father Altham enjoyed a most delightful conversation with the emperor in the sign language of spiritual matters. And although this, the first catechism class in Charles County, did not prove a great success, yet the willing ear his majesty gave to the explanation of truths he did not understand, and his hearty welcome to the fathers was a pledge of great results in the future. It's the most extraordinary scene, that. They, they couldn't speak the language at all, but somehow, as with John de Brebeuf in Canada, there was some way in which people who love peace can put the message over. And so that was the very first time that the Indians and the uh, Christians met. And it was to be very successful. So therefore we pass from that to Father White, who I know some of you who belong to the Knights of Columbus, you um, have uh, his name and have a great devotion to him. Father White was 54 when he set out across the Atlantic, and he, more than anybody, was a real missionary at heart. Very quickly, the soon as St. Mary's had been founded as the capital of the state, and as soon as there were enough white men and a few priests to, to look after them, Father White went off to live with the Indians. And he got as far as just south of Georgetown. And he lived, and the, le the letters which the fathers wrote home, and they wrote regularly, they describe him um, up there with the, with the Indians. And of course, he stayed in the palace um, of the Indian chief. And it's very exciting, really, because um, this man was not at all a, a good man, and he had no knowledge of the faith. And we are told, meanwhile, Father White had passed over to the other side of the peninsula, the place called Piscataway on the Potomac, not far from the south of modern Washington. So this one man all alone got there. Here lived the chief of all the chiefs, the Tayac, or emperor. And now began a fruitful ministry. The missionary acquired an absolute ascendancy over the mind of this great man, who had indeed killed his elder brother, the reigning Tayac, and had usurped the highest dignity in the state. But he became a docile a disciple, he learnt the Christian doctrine, put away all the women about him except his one wife, observed the precepts of the church, and on a visit to St. Mary's asked to be baptised. The fathers put him off till next year, and it is subsequent, and in a subsequent letter uh, tells that of the great christening in 1640, this great king, emperor, became a Catholic. Whitsuntide was the feast designated, and the chief dignitaries of the English colony were to honor the baptism of the emperor with their presence and their participation in the functions. So there was a most glorious liturgical thing, without missalettes, thank God, uh, when they all met together on the 5th of July, 1640. 
Having been sufficiently instructed in the mysteries of the faith, uh, the emperor received the sacramental waters with solemnity in a little chapel which for that ceremony and for the divine worship he had erected in Indian fashion out of the bark of trees. It's a very interesting description that because that's what we, now we know the first little chapel that Father White had just here, very, very near um, at St. Thomas Manor at uh, Chapel Point. They started with a house that was made largely of the bark of trees by the Indians. At the same time, his wife with her infant and one of the chiefs of his counselors with the little son were regenerated at the font of baptism. The emperor, um, who was called Chickamacon or something like that before, was now christened by the name of Charles. So we'll call him Charlie in future. His wife by that of Mary. The others, too, with the Christian faith, received the same names. The governor, Calvert, was present at the function and in company with the secretary. Nor was anything wanting that our means could supply to enhance the magnificence of the occasion. These letters were written down here by lonely men on the mission field. In the afternoon, the same king and queen were united in matrimony according to the Christian rite. Then was erected a holy cross of no trifling proportions to carry it to the spot chosen, the king and the governor and the secretary and the rest lent their hands and their shoulders. Two of us, meanwhile, chanting the litany of the Blessed Virgin. But the labors and fervor of this occasion brought on Father White's lapse into fever. Father Altham, on his part, fell into sickness and decline, of which he died four months later. So there's poor Father White, all by himself, without only a horse, or a boat to get in touch with his colleagues, and he lived there for about nine years. And, of course, he was a master of languages, had a great gift for tongues, so he eventually learned in the Indian dialects and wrote a grammar and a dictionary. Terrible sweat. I've never seen either. I'm told that one copy or two still survive. If you could find one, they'd be worth a fortune. There may be one at Georgetown, though I've never seen it. But when you read about Father White up there and the work he did, then you begin to realize the tremendous sufferings they had. Father White uh, lived here, just very near here, and he lived in a wigwam. He ate the food of the Indians. He had a chapel, very small, made out of the bark. Father Altham went down to Kent County and lived again in a most a squalid way. And then they suddenly found that death carried off so many of them. Brother Gervais, who was one of the most noble, a brother, he died of an epidemic, so did Father Altham. And then a lovely man called Father Knowles came out from Britain. He was a man of only 30, and he was a very clever man, and he volunteered. His one passion was to be on the missions. And he came here, and he only lasted a month, and then he caught some awful thing and died. We are so lucky today, we don't realize the terrible ravages of plague that s swept the whole of uh, this part, or indeed any part, Mother Seton uh, went through a tremendous trouble with the yellow fever, which in New York in 1800. So then they didn't know what to do. They lost so many young men. And Father Knott, the provincial in England, <coughs> he wrote round to the seminary. It's the only time I've known a provincial to do this. And he said to the, he wrote to the seminarians and said, our mission, we're finding it hard to man it, and therefore, if anybody would like to volunteer, please do. And you can see all the letters they wrote. They're published in the Woodstock letters, which you have in the library here. 
And Father Hughes gives the whole lot in his great history of the Jesuits in North America. But they sent out this appeal, and it was very touching, all the men who wrote in. One man was a professor, and he could speak 12 languages. And he said, I feel God's given me this grace, and I'd like to um, come out and use my talents with the Indians rather than rot here in Louvain. Um, he never got there. There was a man, two Father Parkers, one poor man wrote a sweet letter saying, I'm longing to go, but all my, all my colleagues in the seminary say that I'm no use because I've got bad health and I stutter. But he said, I'm getting my stuttering much better now, and I only stutter in Latin, and I won't have to, <laughs> and I won't have to speak Latin in, in, in America. There are a whole string of them. They're marvellous. One poor chap said, I've made an extra day of retreat because after reading your invitation, because I don't know what God wants, but I've always hoped to go back to England and bring my mother and father back to the church, but maybe God wills me to go to Maryland. These were brave men um, who wrote these letters, and they're most touching men of 25, 26, who were prepared to come out here and risk everything for the sake of the Indians, not for the sake of Lord Baltimore. And then when they thought of shutting the mission because they couldn't get, even with those volunteers, they were so hard up, one man who was out here, and it's such a, a marvellous letter, he wrote, For my own part, I would prefer to work here among the Indians for their conversion, and, destitute of all human aid, and reduced by hunger to die lying on the bare ground under the open sky, than even to think once of abandoning this holy work of God through any fear of privation. God grant me but the grace to do him some service, and the rest I leave to his providence. So it really were, they were really heroic men. And eventually, as you know, three young men came out who very well may be martyrs and perhaps uh, should be canonized. Uh, these uh, three poor men, Father Rigby and the other two, Father Cooper and somebody, they came out and then the disaster hit the mission. Uh, some of you are interested about Belfast. Uh, directly King Charles I lost the Civil War and was going to be beheaded the Puritans got up in arms. They came from Boston, mostly. Everything bad comes from Boston, as far as I can make out. <laughs> I'm only laughing. And, um, and they came across Virginia, and they came here to Maryland, and they simply smashed up the whole mission. And these three fathers vanished. One was 31, one was 35, one 38. Nobody knows what happened to them. In England, they didn't even know they were dead. They still put them down in the list of Jesuits, and they only found out years later that they had been killed. Some say they were martyred, killed by the Puritans. Some say that they died running away or trying to hide from the Puritans. But it was an absolute tragedy that at the time that Charles I fell and was going to be beheaded, the Puritans from Boston and even from Virginia let fly at the Roman Catholics, and the whole thing was wrecked. And poor Father White was removed. He and Father Fisher were taken back to England in chains. He was an old man then of about about my age, 66, and he uh, was taken over, put on a boat with chains and taken back to England and tried for his life. He was in prison in Newgate and then brought before the Chief Justice during that time when the King was very soon going to be killed. And you must say, hand it to the Puritans in England and the Presbyterians that though they were very brutal against Catholics, they were trying to be just. And Father White is about the only chap who ever got off. He appeared in the dock and when the trial came, they pointed out that for a priest to come to England was treason and they would be hanged. And Father White had the neck to say, well, I didn't come to England of my own choice. You dragged me here in chains. I I'm from Maryland. 
So the judge took, agreed, and so though they kept him in prison for another year, they eventually let him go. They put him on a boat and dumped him on the coast of Holland with no money, no papers, at the age of 68. He was a sprightly old chap. He then popped round into the Netherlands and, he, and, and met the Jesuits there in Belgium, and then he came back to England. And he was over 70 now, and then he wanted to come back here. His one desire was to die with his Indians. But the general provincial thought, first of all, Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell was reigning, and there was much hostility, and then he was an old man, and so they uh, wouldn't give him leave. So he went to England during the persecution there, and he lived as a chaplain in some great house, hidden, and died there. He was 76 when he died, and he was 54 when he came to Maryland. So he had a most extraordinary career from being a baby when Edmund Campion was born to dying in, in England, having been up here right up to Georgetown alone and learnt the language and converted the chief. And the chief's daughter was educated as a European and married a white Marylander. So I'd like to follow what happened to her after that. Uh, but it was a most extraordinary free world. So I would feel there uh, for us to meditate on the spreading of the good news. Whatever else happened in other colonies, here in Maryland, certainly the priests and the Catholics who came over did really love the Indians. And there was a marvelous good feeling between them. And so there was never any of that uh, brutality or um, not recorded. No doubt there were horrid things, uh, but the Indians certainly came first. And so when you think and walk around Maryland or when you drive and you see these little places like St. Mary's itself or Leonardstown or St. Inigo and all these churches, they all began um, with the priest living with the Indians in a, in a wigwam or some kind of tent, eating the most terrible food, and then at the same time the first chapels were certainly built of bark and leaves. Then when King Charles II came to the throne and the monarchy was again established, then they began to build in wood and brick. The oldest church here, I think, is St. Francis Xavier's, is the oldest one that's still the original structure. And that's a hundred years before we could have a church in England. In England, no chapel was allowed at all until about 1780. But you've got here uh, in St. Francis Xavier's an older building by far than we have the Catholics had in England. You were a hundred years ahead of us in opening these churches. The pattern was pretty well always the same. The priests first started in a wigwam and uh, with a little bark chapel and the Indians coming. And then you get the, the building of these early uh, mid-17th century um, or early 18th century uh, brick things. And then towards the end of the century, when Georgetown was built, you, the church was more established and you begin to get uh, quite lasting chapels like you've got at St. Thomas Manor. But the history behind it is always the same. Now, I would like, I could have got taken it from Father White's letters because he wrote so many letters, and you can, you can read them if you wish. I mean, there are, uh, the letters from Maryland to England by the different Jesuits are all published. And you do get a tremendous amount of details about your own country. But I think the most marvelous letter I've ever read from a missionary is one that comes from Canada. And I've carried this book around because I read it to the seminarians of Dallas, and I'd like to read it to you because it does, at the end of our meditation, show us exactly what it means 
to be self-sacrificing in the spread of the gospel. It's written for priests, but it will be just as true today of you and me, that if we're going to sell the good news, we've got to behave in a certain way. If we're off-putting, or if our life is not edifying, then we can't expect anyone to listen to our message. Now, this will be just about the time when Father White was here, uh, John de Brebeuf, who is a giant, was up in Canada, and he was the superior of the Jesuit missions to the Iroquois and the other Indians. They had a savage life too. And Father de Brebeuf drew up in a letter rules for French Jesuits who volunteered for Canada. And he, it was called Instructions for the Fathers of Our Society who shall be sent to the Hurons. And he started off, you must have sincere affection for the savages. To conciliate them, never make them wait in embarking, have a tinderbox to light their pipes and fires for them. Eat their sagamite, although it is dirty, half-cooked and even tasteless. Eat all they offer and when they offer it. Do not carry water or sand into the canoe do not be troublesome. Do not ask too many questions. Do not criticize. Be and appear to be always cheerful. Make presents to them of pocket knives, fish hooks, colored glass beads. Do not stand on ceremony. Wear a nightcap in the canoe rather than a broad-rimmed hat. I don't know why they had to do that. Help carry the baggage at the portages if only it be a kettle. Then he goes on to say, Finally, understand that the savages will retain the same opinion of you in their own country that they will have formed on the way. And one who has passed for an irritable and troublesome person will have considerable difficulty afterwards in moving this opinion. You have to deal not only with those of your canoe, but also, if I may say it, with all the inhabitants of the country. You meet some today and others tomorrow, and they do not fail to inquire from those who brought you what sort of man you are. It is almost incredible how they observe and remember even to the slightest fault. When you meet savages on the way, as you cannot greet them with kind words in their own language, at least show them a cheerful face, and thus prove that you endure gladly the fatigues of the voyage. You will thus have put to good use the hardships of the way and have already advanced considerably in gaining the affection of the savages. This is a lesson which is easy enough to learn but very difficult to put into practice. For leaving a highly civilized community, you fall into the hands of a barbarous people who care nothing at all about your philosophy or your theology. All the fine qualities which might have made you loved and respected in France are like pearls trampled under the feet of swine, or rather of mules. They utterly despise you when they see that you are not as good a pack animal as they are. If you could go naked and carry a load of a horse upon your back as they can do, then you would be wise according to their doctrine and would be recognized as a great man. Otherwise, Jesus Christ is our true greatness. It is he alone and his cross that should be sought in running after these people, for if you strive for anything else, you will gain naught but bodily and spiritual affliction. But having found Jesus Christ on his cross, you have found the roses in the thorns, sweetness in bitterness, 
everything in nothing. Now, Father White wrote practically the same, only he, his is scattered round among his letters. That when you come to tell the good news to the people, they've got to like you. And they've got to see you living an honourable life. And if you are irritable or put on airs or claim degrees or status, you'll get nowhere. And that's why I like at the end, I think Father puts it as well as anybody, and he's a great saint, John de Brebeuf, that it shows the kind of life that all missionaries in those days had to endure. And not only the missionaries, but the Catholics who came here. When you read the letters and see the journeys of the priests and how they were welcomed in the homes, you realize that in those very hard days with fever and death everywhere, there was a most wonderful spirit inside the Maryland colonists. Later there would be rows and treachery, but for about a hundred and something years, the colony was a great success, quite the most pleasant one to read about during colonial times. So we might think of those points ourselves. It would be the same with St. Paul when he set out on his great journeys, that really to spread the good news, you've got to lead a very special kind of life so that people not only hear what you say, but they see you with a cheerful face.